Hello, Tosca here of the podcast NGO Soul and Strategy. The second series in my podcast, which I just launched, is about how NGOs can develop a stronger outcome orientation, by which I mean a stronger focus on outcomes they actually create. I'm doing this for a couple of reasons. First, the broader public, and especially younger generations of supporters and activists, as well as institutional donors increasingly ask for proof of such outcomes. This norm is also increasingly embraced by staff and leaders who genuinely want to know what outcomes their NGOs are actually creating. Yet our systems and processes, and I would argue sometimes our cultures, are not yet aligned with with such a stronger outcome orientation. So this is why I wanted to prioritize this theme in the podcast. A stronger focus on getting better at organizational learning has to be a part of any attempt to become more focused on outcomes. In this first episode in the series, I'm talking with two genuine powerhouses in the field of evaluation and organizational learning, Julia Kaufman and Tanya Beer, who lead the Center for Evaluation Innovation. Enjoy. Hello, and welcome to NGO Soul and Strategy, the podcast for NGO leaders and managers who look change right in the eye. My name is Tosca Bruno van Vijfijken, and I'm the founder and principal consultant at Five Oaks Consulting. I have over three decades of experience helping leaders in civil society and philanthropic organizations manage change, invest in cutting-edge leadership development, lead organizational culture change, and strengthen organizational effectiveness. If you are in an international civil society leadership position or are aspiring to grow towards that, this podcast is for you. Good day, everybody. Today, I am excited to interview two power women, two women, Julia Kaufman and Tanya Beer of the Center for Evaluation Innovation. Um, and we're going to talk about how NGOs can become more outcome oriented and how that sometimes also has to involve organizational change processes. So let me tell you a little bit about Julia. Julia is the founder and director of the Center for Evaluation Innovation that advances both evaluation and learning practices, particularly in philanthropy. And Julia, she's worked with dozens of foundations on their approaches to evaluation. Her expertise is in uh, evaluating advocacy and policy efforts and real-time learning uh, as used by, by our organizations. So Julia, first of all, welcome to you. Thank you. Happy to be here. And Tanya, Tanya is Julia's colleague, close colleague, and she's the Associate Director of the Center for Evaluation Innovation. And together with Julia, she is a high-profile thought leader in the field of philanthropy and evaluation, as well as in the field of organizational learning. Julia used to work at the Colorado Trust, where she worked on research, evaluation, and learning. And for those of you who work in the evaluation sphere, but not just as evaluation techies, if you will, but also talking with uh, board members, talking with organizational leadership and, and managers, et cetera, about evaluation and learning, 
Julia and, and Tanya really know how to translate the field of evaluation to, um, to leaders in a way that is uh, relevant to them. So uh, Tanya, welcome to you too. Thank you, happy to be here. I am excited about this conversation. So let's get started. How did the two of you get started in evaluation and particularly in the field of philanthropy and evaluation as well as the field of advocacy as undertaken by or supported by philanthropic institutions and NGOs and evaluation. Talk me through that, please. So Tanya and I both actually started our careers um, in very similar ways. Mm. Uh, after coming out of, of graduate school, we both, our first major jobs were working for um, state government in different states, Arizona and Colorado, for the state auditor's office. And so we, we um, evaluated, we did performance evaluation of state agencies. I see. And yeah, so that's, that's how we got started. Um, but then I went to a, uh, after that research project, and Tanya then went to the Colorado Trust, um, a foundation. And um, I think I, I'm a few years older than Tanya, so I got into philanthropy um, first. But we both, I, I, I think I can speak for Tanya here. We, we both um, were getting involved in philanthropy at a time when foundations were developing longer term strategies that clustered um, NGOs and grantees together in ways that they hoped would um, add up to where the sum was greater than the parts. Mm. And they were, they were, they were looking for evaluation to support that work in a way that was not as traditional. So the work itself wasn't traditional. It was more complex. They were doing more things like advocacy and non-service delivery related things. Right. Um, and Tanya and I are both drawn to complexity and, and hard to assess things where you don't, you can't apply traditional approaches. So that's how we, we, we both um, were really drawn to, to that. And that is a, a, an attractive way also phrasing it because as you both know, uh, NGOs in particular will often um, say that the type of work that they do that is uh, particularly if it's more than or different than short-term ameliorative or humanitarian mm -hmm. relief efforts, that it's hard to evaluate. Whether that is entirely uh, a satisfying answer or not is maybe a different question, but it's definitely your field and your expertise therefore is, is highly attractive. Tanya, do you want to say something about how you got started that, that, that complements what, what, uh, um, what Julia said? And tell me also a little bit about why you think that the field that the two of you work on is so important. I, I, it's, it's actually kind of a funny story. Julia had started uh, working in the consulting field while I was still making evaluations for a foundation. Mm. I met her by hiring her to help me figure out how to evaluate a really messy systems changer. Uh -huh. And it was partly because I couldn't find a lot of other evaluators who were comfortable with the nonlinearity and with the sort of change of integrating qualitative and quantitative information to figure out what's happening. 
And so we both kind of discovered the mess of that kind of work. Uh, and, and then after a few years, I came to work with Julia at the center. Um, I think that uh, there, I think that one of the reasons that I enjoy this so much and I feel like kind of evaluative work that we do is so important is because we hear from NGOs and from funders quite a bit that there are a lot of um, sort of frustration and pain in more conventional measurement and evaluation approaches when they're applied to efforts like advocacy and systems change, where there's a little bit of less predictability and certainty. And it can incentivize the behaviors among um, NGOs if they have expectations to report on types of outcomes of indicators that, that, for example, trap them in a particular set of tactics when the changing context might call for them something different. So we were worried about how many resources are spent on evaluation with very little um, very little real evidence from our just observational experience that that kind of um, evaluative information was actually improving people's ability to achieve what they wanted to achieve, as opposed to just serving as a kind of bureaucratic accountability mechanism between- Or upward accountability. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so I think I think that for both of us, it, we've been trying to really figure out how does how does evaluation and measurement have real value for our ability to achieve the outcomes we want to achieve, and really inform some ongoing adaptation to strategy and tactics so that you increase your likelihood to be success, successful in complex contexts. Mm-hmm. And if we keep in mind that the audience for this podcast uh, is particularly leaders, organizational leaders and managers of international NGOs, um, tell me what are some of the common myths in the field that you work on, both advocacy and evaluation, as well as um, organizational learning and, and the field of philanthropy and evaluation. Uh, what are some of the common myths mm. in this field that you see being held in the heads of leaders and man- managers? Oh, there are many. <laughs> um, okay. I think, I think, and sometimes they're lifting, but that one of the common ones that we hear is that uh, it's not possible to evaluate complex, or it's not possible to evaluate things like advocacy and systems change. Uh, when in fact, um, and it just requires a different approach and a different kind of attitude towards and relationship towards data and information mm-hmm. and how you make sense out of it. Uh, the other side, um, I think another common myth is that everything is countable. Uh, and that uh, value in turning everything into a metric. And we see a lot of leaders kind of operationalizing ideas about accountability through things like big metrics frameworks. And um, I think that that causes a few traps that then organizations really struggle to get out of, such as... um, finding that the what is actually the heart of their work is not reflected in their metric framework. And so right. there's real work happening over here. And then there's a lot of time and effort spent on, a, spent on a metrics framework. And the two don't actually inform each other. Um, I think really big problematic myth that we've got to deal with that funders often perpetuate, which is um, 
there's a really overblown, I experience a really kind of overblown sense of what kinds of large scale systemic outcomes a particular organization can claim. Overblown, you're yes, saying. Yes, mm -hmm. exactly. And, and there's so many incentives to try to claim credit yeah. for those really big systemic outcomes. So I, I understand that. And what and and but what happens then is if you're paying attention to those big overblown outcomes, you, you don't really understand how your own organization is contributing to a, a whole bunch of interactive efforts to produce change, which means you're not getting the information that you need. Yeah, maybe, uh, Julia, I can ask you to jump in here when it comes to those overblown outcomes. What do you think? Is it about the interaction between boards of funders or NGOs and their senior leaders that makes those overblown uh, outcomes that exacerbates those, let's say? Well, I think that um, with boards, there's a, and the relationship with the rest of the organization, there's a natural tendency to, um, when you, when you, put your work or your um, strategy or whatever it is in front of the board, there's a, there's a tendency to treat that as you're selling it. You are selling a uh -huh. solution that you've come up with. And so it, it becomes more like an, a marketing exercise than it uh -huh. does a, you know, we are, we here's the, the problem. Here's how it's rooted in this system. We don't exactly know how to solve it, um, but here's the here's the approach that we're going to try, mm -hmm. and and so it's a it, rather than acknowledging uncertainty and risk and um, experimentation in strategies, it's more like we have the answer, and um, and so you when you do that, you promise things that you cannot possibly promise or control. Yes, that's right. And that makes me think of the terrific presentation that uh, that the two of you and your team did at the last American Evaluation Association that I just thoroughly enjoyed about boards and, and organizational learning. I did. Um, so let me jump to a topic that is a little bit around what we can explore in the nexus between um, change management, organizational change management and um, how NGOs could spur more out what I call outcome orientation. So as I told you before we started the interview, um, this interview is kind of bridges nicely between the series on change management that I am finishing for the podcast and the next one on NGOs and outcome orientation. So I was wondering how do the two of you see the link or maybe even just one aspect or two aspects of the link between strengthening evaluation and organizational learning capabilities and change management? That's such a good question. We, we, just to speak from our own experience and where we get to sort of observe this in action, which as Julia said before, within a philanthropic setting, mm -hmm. uh, a foundation setting, although then they are in turn asking NGOs to, to um, kind of operationalize their own expectations around evaluation. Um, so one of the things we see routinely happening in um, the change process in foundations, and I should say we just collected some about um, evaluation in 
philanthropy and discovered an extraordinary amount of organizational transition happening on a routine basis. There'd be new CEOs coming in, asking for a new strategic redesign and new staff restructuring and new values and all of those kinds of things. And it's happening on a really frequent basis. Um, so it's a real problem in philanthropy, the kind of churn that it creates. Mm. Um, and I think that uh, one of the things we witness is that foundations going through this process, uh, a change process, one of the things they ask of their of their evaluation staff or their evaluation function is to help capture the best set of indicators and outcomes roughly thinking of the staff uh, and turn it into an indicator framework. And uh, what we see in that process often is that staff are, are because they feel a lot of uncertainty about their positions, yes. about their current thing, about what's important to do in their field, just like in a boardroom, as Julia said before, all of their incentives are sort of oriented around packaging and selling the work they're already doing mm-hmm. to try to make sure that it wins in the competition, right? To see what's going to stick around as the organizational change happens. And consequently, what could theoretically be a really strong to say if this is the outcome we're really serious about trying to move really what is our best thing, what tried and learned does and doesn't work under what conditions, what evidence do we bring to the table, and what might that mean for how strategic approach needs to adjust as we move towards this new outcome, instead becomes an exercise in bias. How do we go find data and evidence that pitches to our own organizational leadership that this is the route to keep going, to get us to these outcomes. Um, so that's just one observation hmm. I will start with um, that we feel like people get tripped up in quite a bit. So you're, you're, what I hear you say, Tanya, is that the uh, in the context of fairly frequently reoccurring organizational change processes, people, staff feel even more that they have to pitch uh, uh, their uh, programs and therefore their set of hoped outcomes. Um, in a constant kind of jockeying for maintaining budgets, maintaining intact teams, etc., and yes. their own people's own jobs in the process as well. Yeah, Tanya, do you want to um, complement some other thoughts? Or Julia, like yes. Yeah. Sorry, Julia. Yeah, we we also see that um, again. Speaking about foundations, that when transition happens that, um, and the most common, I think, transition or, or change that happens in an organization is the development of new strategies, mm-hmm. programmatic strategies, or strategy refreshes. And we see that when that happens, um, evaluation and learning becomes Um, gets sort of pigeonholed into this function of just help us determine how this particular strategy is measurable. Um, What are Mm -hmm. are our outcomes? And we think there's a lot of opportunity for for evaluation and learning to play um, a much stronger role 
uh, in that process and in a way that supports change management. So for example, one of the, one of the things that happens at the start of a, a strategy is um, uh, people will often do a landscape scan yep. to see, mm-hmm. you know, what are other people doing in yep. this in this field? And, um, you know, in some cases, what does the literature say? Um, with without, but that doesn't um, have any focus on what has the organization learned about its capabilities to work in this area. What have what has it learned about um, you know doing similar work in the past? Uh, so it's so the learning is all about moving forward and not about looking back and really thinking about. Um, the organization itself and and its own learning. So that's just an example of... of that's super interesting. I'm going to keep that in mind uh, mm-hmm. when I do future uh, work um, on strategy as, as a consultant. So um, talking a little bit more about those NGOs that do aspire to become yet more outcome and learning oriented. Mm-hmm. What are some specific roadblocks for them to watch out for when they have that really good intention to become more outcome focused? What could be things that trip them up nonetheless? You know, there, there are, so I think we should talk about a couple of different things. And, and one of those is um, a view of learning as a separate distinction that is about the work, uh, as opposed to something that is actually integral to the work. And that, that sounds nice, but it doesn't actually mean in, in reality. Well, one of the things we notice, of course, is that staff are, are almost pathologically, they have elaborate schedules and processes and meetings, et cetera. And what they, we see a lot of folks responsible for increasing the learning practice in an organization doing is layering on top a new set of meetings, SSEs, activities that are about learning. Mm-hmm. And what happens in that context, of course, is that staff who start two things, they first start to think, um, this is taking me away from my real work. Yep. But, right, so they they remain separate, and it is the thing that is um, the the first thing you can cut when you've run out of time or effort yep. or budget, right? So there's got to be a way, and this is what we try to work with organizations to figure out how to do: is how do you adjust processes and ways of thinking to embed good learning practices in the way you already work, as opposed to laying on these sets of of activities. Uh, that's what you meant when you said uh, integral to the work. Yes, exactly. Okay. And so, so that those routine opportunities that staff do anyway, like, you know, their team meetings or periodic strategy check-in or their conversations with critical partners out in the field, how do you just adjust those things to increase the ability for staff to take in information, to test their thinking, to then pull that information into steps, translate it into adjustments into their work. Mm-hmm. So that we feel like is a maybe a better frame for thinking about how to build learning into an organization than creating whole new structures that sit on top of the work. 
Mm, so basically the use of existing, I'll just call it in a kind of a, a, a one word, a management instruments mm. in order to embed learning in, in that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but Julia, you've had, let me just ask Julia to say something here too. Because yeah, yeah. We, she's pointed out to me quite a few times that like one of the risks in there is that um, people can also, as they embark on learning focus or try to adjust their learning culture, we're seeing some evidence that they're leaving behind data and evaluation when they do that, uh, rather than figuring out how to incorporate it in there. Um, and Julia, I'm wondering if you'd share a couple of thoughts about that. Um, yeah, there's a, you mean the trend toward learning and yeah. So I think that um, one of the, we know something about evaluation and learning in the sector, which um, which is that a lot of times it's not seen as useful. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so one of the, the ways that the sector has dealt with that is to um, move more toward learning and, um, and in some cases away from evaluation. And as, a, as, a, um, as an approach for, I guess, in some ways, making people feel more comfortable with it, uh, et cetera. But the risk in that and in, in um, decoupling evaluation from learning is that uh, sometimes it means that any information that you use um, is seen as it's labeled um, yeah 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 and so you get away from high quality data and evidence that you really need to support your learning and that help to combat um biases like confirmation bias etc so uh, so we're we are trying to watch that carefully um in the sector yeah and and i you know we all know that being evaluated is deeply emotional uh, right, because it, it triggers immediately in all of us, including myself, um, deeply instincts in sort of threats, and we know that those threats are often experienced as as severely as physical threats, physical mm-hmm. pain. Right, so learning comes across as um, more um, innocuous or benign, etc. But Julia is making the good point that that actually sometimes can lead us to be a little bit more sloppy in terms of trying to really test our hypothesis, Mm -hmm. test our assumptions and try to mitigate against uh, confirmation bias. Yeah. Do you have um, some tips, by the way, I'm just trying something out here for organizational leaders to, um, to embody in the culture through their own actions, uh, mitigation against things like confirmation bias. Mm. You know, we, uh, it's funny, one of the pieces of data we collected in our benchmarking survey on evaluation philanthropy showed that um, there is a lot of verbal support at the leadership level for learning, but Mm -hmm. that uh, evaluation directors report that it's much rarer for leaders in an organization, either the board level, CEO level, to actually model the activity of learning in front of their staff. That's right. And so, and I think that we're thinking about learning in a particular way, which is um, making visible in front of people how uh, your sort of starting hypotheses are, what new information you're taking in and making sense, and what therefore 
changing your own thinking and, and understanding of the problem, understanding of how you can work within it, and then showing, being able to demonstrate how your actions will adapt accordingly. So that kind of organizational learning definition of learning, not the information conveyance version of learning. Mm. So um, there's a few just very straightforward tools that we've used with in foundation to be very helpful. Like there's the what, so what now, what cycle from the human systems dynamics literature Mm -hmm. that invites the just to the routine of saying, what are we seeing? What do we think that means? And what do we think that means we should do next? And even design things like your board presentations around that cycle can reinforce the idea and make visible to the word the way the, the, the real work of learning is this ongoing sense-making and adaptation. And um, we've seen some folks uh, successful with stuff like that. Um, and Julia's done a lot of work also just on thinking about incentives and how leaders can inadvertently incentivize the wrong kinds of behavior uh, for learning oh. and what, what they might do instead. Oh, Julia, I'd love to hear you on those incentives. Um. Yeah, uh, so I think, so I, I guess I just want to um, uh, comment on on sort of our orientation to all of this that applies to leaders and to um, really anyone in the organization that that we try to think about how do we make how do we make the use of information um, a habit that is part of of anybody's everyday routines or occasional routines like board meetings, like staff meetings, like, um, you know, a debriefing from a conference, et cetera. And so, so there are a a set of habits that we've talked about in our work that, um, that if you do them, it should improve your learning. It should also help you to combat some of the biases that, that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just want to lift up one of those as a simple yeah. example, um, which we've found to be actually really meaningful. Um, and that's the, the thing that drives all evaluation um, and learning is the questions that you ask. And we okay. think that one of the one of the reasons why evaluation often is not useful or, or a frustrating exercise is that we're asking the wrong questions that are not actually relevant to what strategists or what leaders really need to know. Um, and so we've got a body of work on how to ask powerful questions that are truly strategy questions that if you answered them, mm-hmm. you would know how to do something differently or better mm-hmm. and not just not just telling you stuff that you already knew or mm-hmm. that you um, already thought you knew. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's a good example of the kind of thing you you want leaders to develop as a well is how to ask deep questions that are meaningful and activating for staff's learning. And I think the other piece that we see, so when people see leaders modeling that behavior, it's an incentive to mirror that behavior. But and another incentive issue that comes up quite a bit, which is uh, leaders often inadvertently signal to staff that the staff they value the most who are the ones who project the most certainty, right? Uh, interesting. The ones they that have, the, yeah, 
Yes, they, exactly. They hold up the staff who seem most certain or yes. embody or express that certainty. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Okay. Whether it's the most tightly polished strategy proposal or package or um, the most tight and kind of perfectly um, a tidy uh, strategy review or report to the board, those folks are often rewarded, again, sort of even informally with more right. airtime in front of their board or more congratulations or perks from the, the CEO. And what that signals to other staff is that they should never express uncertainty. Right. And if you're unwilling to express uncertainty about whether your thinking is right, whether how how you might handle unanticipated things coming your way, you're ready out of a posture of learning. Right. So there's something about that. Be how do you get attuned to the signals you're projecting about what way of what way of being in the world, what kinds of certainty and curiosity are valued. Uh, and curiosity are valued versus um, accidentally incentivizing those tightly polished right, packages. Right. And I love what the two of you just said, not just because of the content and the depths of that, but also because when I um, uh, uh, think about organizational culture, I always urge the NGO colleagues I work with to pull it down from things like values and principles to the level of habits. Habits and daily shared, widely shared and daily practiced behaviors. And Julia's example and yours are exactly at that level where I think we, if we can uh, reinforce and celebrate those habits, as well as, of course, um, uh, deprioritizing or are discouraging some other habits on a daily basis, that kind of viral effect, that kind of social proofing will happen where people will watch those babies and say, oh, I want to do that also. I want to be like that. So I, I love what you just said. So let me pivot a little bit and ask you something. Tell me something that's, that you think it's true that almost no philanthropic funder or NGO agree, agrees with you on when it comes to evaluation and learning. Well, that's a hard question. <laughs> it's meant to be provocative. I, I have one idea and I would okay. say, I think that I'm gonna give a little caveat, which is that I think this is almost foundation leader or NGO leader or board member would agree with this, but many staff would, okay. which is, uh, and maybe a controversial position. I think almost all dashboards and are, <laughs> and I, and, and, yeah. and there's so much energy and time and money put into the production of, of dashboard work and, and, in many cases, when we see them in action, it be, again, it becomes an exercise in kind of gaming. I don't know. I don't mean that nefariously, but kind of gaming the metrics to make sure yeah. you're selling well. Yeah. And, um, and so there's got to be some way to do that differently that would help uh, get people out of the gaming process or that gaming mindset and, and instead use those, those, figure out what is the alternative that helps folks stay focused on outcomes, mm -hmm. uh, but not using, 
nearer term indicators to game the performance process, mm. right? So I don't know if that looks like a situation analysis that's got clear data on outcome, but just as the starting point rather than the ending point, maybe you embed that into that what, so what now what cycle as opposed to having the outcome data or the indicators be the, the sort of dispositive point about your work that proves your work is effective. Uh, so we get a lot of pushback from folks on our critiques of dashboards. Uh, that's, you know, it was really funny. Actually, about five minutes ago, I thought about asking you about dashboards, but I thought not, and I don't know nearly as much about dashboards as you do, um, but I thought, no, that's too techy. Let me stay away from that. So ah. I think it's re really <laughs> ironic that you bring it up. So Julia, do you want to give it a go? Something yeah. that you know that's true that you think almost nobody agrees on? Well, I think I, I think there's growing agreement or acknowledgement of this, but I, I just want to talk about um, some of our work with the Equitable Evaluation Initiative uh -huh. um, that is uh, an effort to, um, to promote the use of evaluation as a as a mechanism or as a tool for helping to advance equity. So, right. so evaluation is part of the social change process. Yeah. And as part of our work with, um, with that initiative, um, we worked on identifying a set of um, what we called orthodoxies that are present in, um, particularly in philanthropy, about how we think about evaluation and learning. And they um, are widely accepted, widely practiced, um, and include things like, um, but, are, but are at odds with this notion of equitable evaluation. And so it's things like um, uh, quantitative data um, is more valuable or is, mm. the, is the highest value um, commodity in evaluation or that um, evaluators are objective. Mm. And so there are a set of, of those widely practiced um, orthodoxies in philanthropy, in NGOs, in the social sector generally, in evaluation as a discipline mm -hmm. that um, we really need to rethink. And mm. it's, it's causing, um, it's, it's uh, making waves. I, I imagine, yes. Is that a piece of work already out in the public realm? Because I'd love to uh, link to that in the show notes of this episode. Yes. Yes, okay. we can share that with you. Good. Then we'll, we'll put that in the show notes for, for our audience. Wow. Uh, you've given me so much thought um, to take away here. So let me ask you two last questions. And one is very whimsical. Um, what professor profession, excuse me, other than your own, would you like to attempt or would you have liked to attempt instead of this one and why? So um, it's funny, I'm going to answer, but uh, knowing that Julia is like truly born to be an evaluator, <laughs> so I'm always able to hear her response to this. Um, I think I would have tried to be a landscape architect, uh, although uh, I only have like living plants, so it really is a long <laughs> shot. But um, I think I would have done it because I like having my hands in the dirt and thinking about how the environment around us makes us feel healthier uh, and connected. 
And, and that is true, yeah. How about you, Julia? Even if you were born to be an evaluator, what else could you have seen yourself uh, attempting? Well, I, I mean, I'll, I'll give a serious response and then maybe the more whimsical. I mean, on a serious level, I, I am born to be an evaluator, um, but I've been a consultant, you know, or in a mm -hmm. consulting role the whole time. I would love to be on the opposite side and have a pile of money that I can use in some, you know, to be a to be a grant maker and to make grants and to support field development and support the growth of evaluation. I mean, that would be that would be amazing. Um, amazing. Also, also possibly attainable. So, so a a. <laughs> A more whimsical answer is I think um, uh, not landscape design or architecture, but I think interior design in some way. Oh, so it's interesting we, that both of you have one aspect of design, but yes. just a different aspect. We um, could be a team on that side too, Julia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> by, by the way, Julia, may I just probe a little bit more? What does it mean to be born to be an evaluator? What kind of traits does that imply in your own experience as you self-reflect? Yeah. I mean, this is a, this going back to the equitable evaluation conversation is something that I've been thinking about a lot because I think what I'm, what I'm good at and most evaluators are sort of logical, rational thinkers who, uh, who categorize things well and um, you know are good at simplifying complexity, and that's what I'm good at. However, that's a very technocratic way of approaching uh, social change and of mm. approaching evaluation. And so, um, so I've been challenged to to think about what skills do I need. Um, well, number one, or I guess in what ways have I contributed to the problem in the way that I've practiced evaluation all of these years? Mm. Um, but then how, what other skills or what other ways of being do I need um, to, to act in a different way and in, in a more equitable way? But, but just to, to maybe um, give you one nugget about what that, what it means to be born to, to be an evaluator. I think it, it is in, in the vision of um, using evaluation as part of social change. And um, I am born to do that. Mm, you're very clear on that. Um, it struck me, by the way, Julia, when you talked about uh, the, the, the technocratic side to evaluation, which can easily be emphasized, right? Um, um, that that uh, not only is not necessarily the correct or, or sufficient lens to look at um, equitable evaluation as a vision, but also it's not necessarily the right way to influence organizational leaders, right? And to get their to actionable um, um, uh, outcomes. So I think that's something that those of us who work in the field of evaluation constantly have to think about. It's our skills in logic or analysis or categorizing are not at all necessarily what is going to get the outcomes of our evaluations accepted. And if we don't have a deep understanding of both organizational dynamics, as well as uh, uh, personal uh, and interpersonal dynamics uh, and things like, for me, the perennially interesting topics of power and people in organizations, then uh, I don't think we will have much impact. So. 
All right. So finishing up, if people want to learn more about the two of you and about the Center for Evaluation Innovations work, where should they go? We'll put it in the show notes. We have a website, evaluationinnovation.org, uh, and a lot of resources, both by us, but about also by a lot of our colleagues and friends uh, in the field about learning, learning philanthropy and foundations, about the board, the information about how to rethink what happens in the boardroom so that it incentivizes the webinar on powerful questions, um, all kinds of pieces like that, including some technical pieces on how to how to evaluate different things like advocacy and systems change work. Yes, and then in addition to that, people can find you, the two of you. I think on well, I, I in fact I know on on LinkedIn, right? Your Twitter. Correct. So we'll we'll put those links in there. Wonderful. Well, I I want to thank you for this interview. I have thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, it was uh, so. Uh, stimulating as it always is and I want to thank you for the thought leadership that you have both provided so far and that I know you will continue to to um, to to um, to exhibit so thank you so much and till we talk again excellent thank you Tosca thanks for listening to NGO soul and strategy if you want to learn more, have a look at my website, fiveoaksconsulting.org, where you will find posts on topics related to what we discussed today. That's five, as in the number five, oaksconsulting.org. You can also find free white papers there, recordings of interviews with me, as well as information about the upcoming book, Between Power and Irrelevance, The Future of Transnational NGOs, of which I'm a co-author and which will be published in June 2020. Or feel free to email me at tosca at fiveoaksconsulting.org and follow me on my social media channels, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. And be sure to leave a review on iTunes or any of the places where you get your podcasts so that others can find it too. So until we talk again, this is Tosca at NGO Soul and Strategy the podcast for leaders who look change right in the eye.